Our scripture lesson tonight uh, continues as we go through the Gospel of Luke together between now and Easter. Uh, tonight we're looking at Luke chapters 4 and 5. We're going to start um, sort of at the end and then work our way back in. So let's share in God's good word together. Once when he was in one of the cities, there was a man covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he bowed with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you choose, you can make me clean. Then Jesus stretched out his hand, touched him, and said, I do choose, be made clean. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Between now and Easter, we are looking through the whole gospel, the good news according to Luke. St. Luke, there's only 24 chapters, and so we invite you, rather than giving up chocolate or sweets or something else this Lent, to give up five minutes a day. Simply read a chapter a day, and even if you miss every other day, you'll still be done. 24 chapters, you can get all the way through the gospel, the good news according to Luke. And as a way of introduction, if you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take those out. Uh, with God, friends, I want to remind us that there are no nobodies. There are no nobodies in God's kingdom. Will you say that with me? There are no nobodies in God's kingdom. No nobodies, no outsiders. Uh, last week we started with Luke chapters 1 and chapters two, chapter 2. And what we find is that God's own self, God chooses to come to the world in a way that no one would expect. The Herod had a huge palace on the top of a hill, had his own swimming pool with people walking water up from a well and pouring it in. And that's not where Jesus came. If you were to look out into a cave far off in the distance where the night shift sheep herders were, that's where Jesus was born. That's where God chose to come. What we find is that God lifts up the lowly in places like Nazareth, a place that wasn't even on a map. No one would even know about Nazareth. God comes to a young girl, probably 12, 12 and a half, 13 tops, and says, you're going to deliver the Son of God, the Messiah. It comes to Mary. And then, of course, um, the shepherds are the first to see the baby Jesus, which is a pretty good call if you think about it. If you're going to place him in a manger, who, who better to know about how to make the little baby Jesus comfortable than a shepherd? That's how, where they, that was right in their wheelhouse. They knew how to do that. So think about this, that we have a God that we worship, we come together, and we worship, and we celebrate, and we praise a God who comes to a nowhere town, to a peasant teenager, to the least of these and the lowliest of shepherds. That's who God is. He comes to the least and the last and the lost. And what we find in the Gospel of Luke in ways that we, we don't find quite as, quite as clearly as in the other Gospels is that we, have, we see how Luke really has a heart for the outsider. Luke writes as an outsider. Luke is the only New Testament writer that writes as a Gentile, as an outsider outside the faith in that sense. And what Luke reminds us is that anybody can be somebody in Jesus' name. Anybody can be somebody in Jesus' name. Will you say that with me? Anybody can be somebody in Jesus' name. And this is really good news. And so that's, that's where we are. You're all caught up from Luke chapter 1 and 2. And so today we're going to move forward in the story. In the Gospels, things move really, really quickly. Jesus, from the time he's born, and we have the birth narratives, all the way to 12 years of age, all of that happens in the first chapter and a half. So by Luke chapter 2, verse 40, it says this. The whole first 12 years of his life, uh, this is what it says in Luke chapter 2, verse 40. The child, meaning Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now he's 12. That, that's pretty much it. It goes by really, really fast. And so what we find is that this little 
family in a nowhere town goes to the Passover meal every year, just what they do. In the same way that we would go to Thanksgiving, they're going to Passover. They're going to Jerusalem, they're going to travel, and they're going to sacrifice um, to remember that God is faithful, that God saves God's people, and they do this every year. In the same way that we celebrate the Lord's Supper on Monday Thursday or Holy Thursday, in that same sort of time frame, they would come and they would do Passover year after year after year. Since the time of Moses, some 1,300 years earlier, the families would do this year after year after year. And so they do. When Jesus is 12, they gather everybody up and they get to Jerusalem and they do the Passover. And then they're on their way home and they get a day's journey away and they realize, where's Jesus? Anybody seen Jesus? Where's Jesus? Mary, is, is he with your group? No. Hey, Joseph, is he with yours? No. Hey, how about over there? You know, this family, that family. Nope. So a full day's journey away walking, they got to turn around. They got to go back. Well, now they're two days in. They haven't seen Jesus in two days. It takes them a whole nother day to find him. And so isn't it interesting that Luke in chapter 2, verses 46 to 50, writes it this way. After how many days, friends? Three days. After three days, he had been lost following the Passover. Isn't that interesting? But after the Passover, he would be, no one would know where he is or what he's doing for three days. This would come true again, of course, before the resurrection. After three days, they found him in the temple, and he's sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I, I love how moms do that. Your father and I, right, have been searching for you in great anxiety. And Jesus says to them, well, why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And so you see Jesus starting to move into his calling, into his ministry, into his understanding that he is the very son of God. He's in his father's house and he's teaching. And people are amazed. Now imagine at 12 years of age that you're sitting down and you're, you know, explicating the scriptures to the most learned people around. And you're doing this at 12. This is quite a feat. And everybody knows it. He's full of praise. And then you know what happens after he does this? His mom and dad says, come home to Nazareth. You remember Nazareth where nothing good happens? Okay, mom. Okay, dad. All the way back to Nazareth. 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30 before he leaves Nazareth again. Are you kidding me? Can you imagine how difficult that would be? To know that you are the son of God, to know that you have a special calling on your life, and you are slepping furniture in your dad's carpentry shop from 12 to 30. And the scripture says this, he went down with them, and he came to Nazareth, that no place town, and was obedient to them. Friends, maybe more than anything else, obedience is underrated Obedience to our parents, obedience in our jobs, obedience to one another in faith is the very groundwork, it is the very discipline of what it is to grow into the calling that God has for us. And if we can't be faithful and obedient in little things, we cannot be obedient in big, huge callings. It's, just, it's axiomatic. You have to be able to be obedient in the little things to be able to be obedient in the medium things to be able to be obedient in the large things to be obedient in the huge things that come to us if they're to ever come to us at all. And his mother watched Jesus do these things, and he treasured them in his heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in years, and in divine and human favor, both. 
according to Luke 2, 52. So the story then continues in Luke chapter 3. We, we have some stories about um, John the Baptist and, and about others, but then it gets to the heart of the matter in 321. And, and you almost sort of just read right by it. It says, now when all the people were baptized, lots of folks were being baptized, in Jesus' day you would be baptized sort of as a public health piece as well as a religious piece. There was no separation of church and state. And so if you had worked with meat or blood uh, or dead body, you would be baptized over and over again because you needed to be ritually clean in order to be safe to be in the community. So baptism was something that happened monthly at least for folks, if not weekly, uh, if not a couple times a week. Baptism was a regular part of their life. So now when all the people were baptized, which was a regular occurrence, and Jesus had also been baptized, almost just kind of read over it, and was praying, the heavens open up and the Holy Spirit descends upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice comes from heaven that says, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. And Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his work. And he was the son, as was thought, of Joseph, son of Heli. And, that's, and then it goes on to list his whole um, pedigree uh, and, and all, all the way through. So what we find in this very brief passage is that Jesus is baptized, that's your blank there. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And then is immediately tempted by the devil for 40 days. For 40 days. And this is partly um, connected with Lent now. That we have these times of fasting and praying and preparation. In the same way that Jesus fasted and prayed and, and, and had a different kind of life at the beginning of his ministry. To prepare him for ministry. We are preparing ourselves to celebrate Easter in these 40 days. We find that there. So then, um, look what happens in chapter 4, um, as he has been filled with the Holy Spirit, he's been baptized, he's been tempted by the devil, um, and look what happens. Jesus, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit now, following his baptism, returns to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country, and he began to teach in their synagogues, and was praised by how many people? Everyone. Everybody loved him. He was great. Notice he was not in his hometown. He was outside of his hometown, just a little bit outside. And people loved him. They thought, oh, Jesus is awesome. This is great. Hadn't heard anything like it. So then when he finishes doing that, the next verse says this. When he came home, right, when he comes to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and he went to the synagogue on a Sabbath day, as was his custom, uh, look what happens next. So he goes home, and he's going to preach at his home church with his people, with the people that knew him, that, that knew him as Joseph's boy. He stood up to read the scroll of the prophet Isaiah that was given to him. He unrolls the scroll. He found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he had anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, let the oppressed go free, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Now, for us, we think that's sort of how it ends. But in Jesus' day, you would sit down to begin the teaching. And so as he handed the scroll back to the guy and he sits down, all the eyes are on him because he's about to teach. And they began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came out of his mouth. And they said, uh, is this, isn't this Joseph's boy? Isn't this Joseph's son? We know him. This can't be right. And so Jesus responds to them. Well, doubtless you'll quote me this proverb. Oh, doctor, cure yourself. And you'll say, do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard that you did at Capernaum, which was a city just a little ways away. And Jesus said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. The prophet's hometown. Hmm. Now, let's, let's talk about, the sermon title is this, uh, What Nobody Sees. 
what nobody sees. And I just wonder, if God were to speak through your son or daughter tonight, would you hear him? Would you hear God if he spoke through your spouse tonight? Your mom tonight? Your dad tonight? Your weird Uncle Bill or Aunt Alice? Cousin Seth? Would, could you see that? You see, what nobody sees in Jesus is they look at Jesus, they see nobody but Joseph's boy because they've always known him as Joseph's boy. As if God can't do something new with someone. Because we know them, because we think we know them well, because we know their backstory, because we know their family, because we know their job, because we know them for a long time. We think, oh, well, we know them. We know the book on them. And notice that it's in that place that they completely miss the Savior of the world because they thought they already knew all that. And then it gets worse, actually, in verse 28. When they heard all this, all in the synagogue, they were filled with rage because not only was Jesus a nobody... He was a nobody who was talking like a somebody, and we cannot abide by that. There's nothing worse than a nobody talking like they're somebody, right? Because we're somebodies, and we know the somebodies, and he's not it. So you've got to put him in his place. So they got up, they drive Jesus out of town, they lead him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so they could throw him off the cliff. They were mad as hornets that Jesus, a nobody, a Joseph boy, a carpenter, who lived at home until he was 30, is now talking as if he's somebody. They did not like that at all. You see, the people of Nazareth only saw Jesus as a nobody. So it got me to thinking, well, how do you see Jesus? When you think of Jesus, how do you see him? What standing does he have in your life? Is he treated as a nobody? Is he treated as a good idea? Is he treated as somebody? Or... Do you actually need a savior? Is Jesus your savior? The story continues in Luke 4, 40 and 41. You see, the people that knew Jesus well, that knew his family system, that knew his background, they couldn't see him. Grew up right in front of him the whole time. See this, you know, close intimacy for them blinded them and bred contempt. But if down the road a little bit, as the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various kinds of diseases, they brought them to Jesus. And Jesus simply laid his hands on each of them and he cured them. He didn't just give them an aspirin, didn't make them feel better for the day. He cured them. And then demons also came out of many shouting, you are the son of God. Demons knew who he was. But Jesus rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Messiah. And isn't that interesting that the people who knew Jesus well could not see him. And the demons, who you would never think could ever figure out who Jesus is, they knew exactly who he was and could yell him out. And they had respect and honor for him. They didn't want to have anything to do with him because they knew that he was the son of God. So the demons understand Jesus as the son of God, and the people who grew up around him couldn't see him at all. The story continues in Luke 5. This is all sort of a setup, if you will, as you, as you move forward. So in Luke 5, we get this story uh, that we started with um, earlier tonight. Once, when Jesus was in one of the cities, there was a man covered with leprosy. Now, leprosy today could be any number of diseases. It wasn't just one sort of skin disease. It, was, it covered a, a large group. It could be any one of 10, 12, 15 different diseases. And when Jesus saw the man, the leper, bowed his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you choose, 
you can make me clean. That's what he says. Now, isn't this interesting? As far as we know, this man's never seen Jesus before. Maybe he's heard of him. Maybe he knows of the things that he's done. And he says, Lord, if you want to, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretches out his hand, and he touches him. And he says, I do choose. Be made clean. And immediately, the leprosy left him. Notice that it didn't get just a little bit better. Notice that he didn't watch him over a seven-day period, which was the norm. A priest would look over someone for seven days. They would be quarantined outside the community for seven days. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus touches him. He sees him. He sees the need. He touches him, and he's cured. That's the story. And that's where a lot of us leave it. But I want you to see that the people that knew Jesus well, the people that thought they knew his story, they couldn't see him at all. And then there's this leper that everybody thought was completely outside. They thought he was a nobody, thought that he could never see the Son of God, and he knows exactly who Jesus is. And he saw not only a somebody, but he saw a Savior. He saw his Savior. He saw someone who could change his life. Now that's worth thinking about. Do you ever consider that Jesus actually has the power to change your life? He does. Right now. The question is, does anybody around here anymore think that we need changing? Because the people that knew Jesus well from growing up, they didn't think he had anything to offer them anyway. So they didn't, they didn't worry about him. But the man who saw his need was healed, cured immediately. The leper saw a Savior who could give him his life back, life that really was life, back into the community. Because by law, a leper was completely barred from the community. And so what was the result of this encounter? What happened with Jesus as a result of the healing of this leper. Well, notice this. Look what Jesus does in, in Luke 14, 5, 14. He says, and he ordered him to tell no one. He says to the leper, don't tell anybody. And then he says this, go and show yourself to the priest. And as Moses commanded, make an offering for your cleansing for a testimony to them. Now this is interesting, isn't it? Because what Jesus does is he heals the man, but he doesn't do the priestly function he fulfills the law he cures him and then he says okay it's not my place i'm not your priest i'm not going to say whether you're clean or unclean and in this way he basically forgave him and made him clean but then he says go see your priest now imagine that conversation isn't that going to be interesting the priest that knows this man for all these years is all of a sudden healed completely leprosy free what do you think the first thing the priest is going to ask the leper how did that happen and what's the leper going to say? Jesus healed me. Do you see what Jesus is doing there? It's a very smooth move. Jesus is very smart. He's the smartest man that's ever lived. And he's curing people. And he's allowing the results to be left in his father's hands. He's allowing people to go and to fulfill the law in their own way. He's allowing this man to go to his priest and say, I'm healed. And now the priest is stuck with, now what do we do with Jesus? Because he is who he says he is. And Jesus doesn't have to say a word about it. He allows his actions to speak for him. So in Luke 5, 15, look what happens. The result was more ministry. So now more than ever, word kept spreading about Jesus. And many crowds would gather to hear him and to be cured of their diseases. And then there's something that I think most of us miss. What nobody sees is in Luke 5, 16 that we just read right by. After Jesus touches the leper, he withdrew to a deserted place and prayed. 
Now, it's not just because he'd been in ministry, that's true, but it's also true that what happens in that healing touch is that the leper is made clean. It's also true that Jesus is made unclean. So immediately, the leper is restored to community and Jesus is banned for the next seven days. He has to to go and be to a deserted place because he's not allowed community because by law, he's now unclean because you're not allowed to touch a leper which he had just done. And by self-enforcement, Jesus doesn't go up and and buck the system. He simply steps back, goes and prays, because Jesus is now unclean. Now, friends, this is huge. That we have a God who would choose to see a need, reach into our need, and touch us at our point of deepest need, even if it means that God himself has to take on pain and separation and exile for a moment before he can come back to community. And of course, that's exactly what happens in the Easter story, isn't it? That Jesus would choose to go to the cross to take all pain, all sin, all disease, dis-ease, and take it upon himself, be separated for three days, and then come back restored fully. We see Jesus living this out in his ministry and in his life. It's so beautiful. When Jesus touches the leper, the leper is made clean, Jesus is made unclean. And everybody knew this. As far back as Leviticus 13, thousands of years earlier, the law said this, the person who has the leprous disease shall wear torn clothes that everybody knows so that you, know, you don't mistake them, accidentally touch them, and you let the hair of their head be all disheveled, and he shall cover his upper lip and he cries out, unclean, unclean. Imagine that that's what your life would be. That's who this man was. He would have to wear ratty clothes, have his hair all crazy, and yell out, unclean, unclean. And he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. And he shall live alone outside, live outside the camp. Jesus comes, touches him, and takes on that persona so that this man can be made right with his community again. Who's unclean? In your life. Who does the leper represent? Who are you afraid to touch? Who is it in your life that if you were to sit with them or minister to them or reach out to them, that more than likely you're going to be on the outside for a while? That's who Jesus is. And the gospel writer Luke says he's our master. That's his name. Not just teacher, but master. And the turning point of the whole story is the touch. The turning point is the touch. It's the reaching in to the pain. Jesus dies for giving sinners, and we are given life in the same way that this leper was. A number of years ago, when I was in college, I had a friend of mine share a story with me called The Old Violin. And I've never forgotten it. And it talks about the power of touch. It's a story about a, an old violin, and it was up for auction. The poem goes like this. "'Twas battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it hardly worth his while to waste his time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. "'What am I bid, good people?' he cried. "'Who starts the bidding for me? One dollar, one dollar. Do I hear two? Two dollars. Who makes it three? $3 once, $3 twice, going for three. Silence. 
But no, from the room far back, a gray-bearded man came forward and picked up the bow, then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening up its strings, he played a melody pure and sweet, as sweet as the angels sing. And the music ceased, and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, What now am I a bid for this old violin? As he held it aloft with its bow. One thousand dollars. One thousand. Do I hear two? Two thousand. Who makes it three? Three thousand. Once. Three thousand. Twice. Going and gone. Said he. From one dollar to one thousand dollars. The poem continues. The audience cheered, but some of them cried. We just don't understand. What changed its worth? Swift came the reply. It was the touch of the master's hand. The touch of the master's hand. And many a man with life out of tune, all battered and bruised with hardship, is auctioned cheap to a thoughtless crowd. Much like that old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He's going once, he's going twice, he's going and almost gone but the master comes and the foolish crowd never quite can understand the worth of a soul and the change that is wrought by the touch of the master's hand the touch of the master's hand it changes everything so who are those lepers in your life those untouchables not too long ago it was the people with aids a lot of misinformation. More recently, it's been folks with Ebola. You see, the lepers are always with us in some form. Socially, emotionally, socioeconomically, physically. And are you willing to go outside for a time? Are we willing to go outside for a time to bring someone else inside the family of God? That's our question. Are we willing to go outside for a time to bring someone else inside for the family of God? Paul writes to the early church in Philippi these incredible words. He says, let the same mind be in you. Let it be in us that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bend, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You see, our job is not to separate the nobodies from the somebodies. That's not our business at all. Our job is to welcome everybody. And actually go out. Even it means if we're going to have to be outside for a while. Because that's what Jesus does. It's who he is. But friends, make no mistake. It's very clear from chapter 4 to chapter 5. That only those who recognize their need and turn to God. For mercy. Can hear the words. I do choose. You are clean. I do choose. So this week as our action step. I invite you to reach out to somebody. Even if it means that you're going to be a nobody for a little while. Because that's what our master does. That's who he is. It's who we are to be. In Jesus' name. God's people say, amen.